With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. Salinas Valley farmers are recovering from flooding and assessing the toll. Farmers in the Salinas Valley are still calculating crop damages from a series of atmospheric storms that caused the Salinas River to overflow its banks, flooding 20,000 acres of agricultural land. The Monterey County Farm Bureau estimated that farmers suffered $40 million to $50 million in losses. Total damages were difficult to access with stormwater slow to recede. While much of the flooded acreage was dormant, thousands of acres contain newly planted vegetables and strawberries. Farmers say there may be production shortages come April and May. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into our show headlines. CDFA is offering mental health resources for farmers and farm workers. A recent shooting at two Northern California farms took place earlier this week where seven agricultural workers were killed. San Mateo County Sheriff Christina Corpus says, quote, all of the evidence we have points to this being an instance of workplace violence. The California Department of Food and Agriculture says they understand that stressors felt by farm workers and farmers are very real. They have a dedicated Farmers and Farmworker Mental Health Resources page located on their website. Those resources include the Farm Aid Hotline, Disaster Stress Helpline, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, and the Call Hope Warm Line. In addition, the Western Region's Agriculture Stress Assistance Program is available for those who work directly with farmers, farm workers, or the ag community. A few stress management tips that can be found on the website also include supportive relationships, engaging in 60 minutes of body movement, quality sleep, a balanced nutrition and hydration, mental health care, and mindful practices. If you're seeking help or to find more information, you can visit cdfa.ca.gov. And now here's Brian German with back-to-back agricultural reports. Congressional focus on the debt ceiling could be problematic for the development of the 2023 Farm Bill. Associate Professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Dr. Jonathan Coppas, described how debt ceiling conversations proved to be a challenge in past Farm Bill discussions. What became the 2014 Farm Bill, that process began in 2011. It was supposed to have been rewritten in 2012, and it was in 2011 that we last had this really big partisan fight over the debt ceiling, and that threw off the Farm Bill process and debate. It focused very heavily on cutting spending. And as many farmers will remember, the one of the items that was on everybody's list to eliminate were the direct payments, the $5 billion a year in direct payments that farmers are receiving at the time. And so I think the biggest controversy, the biggest issue, and possibly the most unpredictable driver of this farm bill is this debt ceiling discussion going on right now. The North Coast Pair Research Meeting is coming up next month in Ukiah. Sponsored by UC Cooperative Extension, the California Pear Advisory Board, the Pear Pest Management Research Fund, and the Mendocino County Department of Agriculture, the meeting will be taking place on Thursday, February 9th at the Mendocino County Ag Center Conference Room. The first presentation will begin at 8.30 and cover common violations as well as updates on laws and regulations. Other topics of discussion will include rootstocks and orchard systems for European pears, as well as information on the Pear Genomics Research Network website. The presentations after the morning break will include an evaluation of new bactericides for control of fire blight of pears, weed management issues and control strategies, as well as an update on brown marmorated stink bug trapping in Lake and Mendocino counties. 
More information about the meeting is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at Statewide Agriculture News at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, the Biden administration is facing a lawsuit from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association over the listing of the lesser prairie chicken under the Endangered Species Act. NCBA has filed a notice of intent to sue the Department of the Interior and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. NCBA Associate Director of Government Affairs Sigrid Johannes says it's the first step in court toward overturning the listing, revoking the final rule for both the northern and southern distinct population segments. First and foremost, this listing is inappropriate. Uh, the numbers of lesser prairie chickens that are out there thriving on rangeland at every different life stage that they go through are thriving in pasture, in the same sort of rangelands and you know varying, uh, varying diverse grasslands that are cultivated by cattle producers. They don't live in cropland, you know, they don't live in those very uniform grasslands. They gravitate to the areas where cattle producers are actively working to, you know, to cultivate a, a profile of vegetation that's uh, beneficial not just to livestock but to the lesser prairie chicken and, and a great many other wildlife species. So first and foremost, catching cattle producers up under these overly broad restrictions under the ESA are not appropriate given the work that they're doing to support the habitat that the species needs to thrive. Second of all, uh, we have particular concerns about how this particular listing was written and we're worried about the dangerous precedent that this listing could set for other bird species like the sage grouse. Some of those specific concerns are the fact that we think this line between the northern distinct population segment and the southern distinct population segment is pretty arbitrary. There's not a whole lot of genomic or geospatial evidence to support the division of those two groups of birds. And, and second of all, the 4D rule that's been written for that northern DPS is hugely overreaching and really poses a lot of concerns for us about the power that fish and wildlife is giving away to third parties to oversee the way that private landowners graze on their ranches in those in those states. So this is a pressing issue for Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Colorado. But NCBA really is, is taking no chances with this and is taking this to court because not only do we see the immediate harm to producers in those states, we're worried about what this might mean for, for more states down the line with other bird species. She says conservation efforts from cattle producers have actually helped the lesser prairie chicken population. Absolutely. So cattle ranchers are arguably the, the primary and almost only reason why this bird even thrives in the five states where it currently lives. 
Cattle producers have been leading the way for decades at this point in voluntary conservation agreements. In some places, those take the form of what's called a CCAA or a Candidate Conservation Agreement with Assurances. And in other places, there, you know, there are other structures in place that might be a little bit more informal. But the bottom line is, in all five of these states, there have been ranchers for years at this point who have been voluntarily cultivating the habitat that the bird needs to survive. And they do this without a mandate from the government they do it because they're invested in healthy ecosystems and also it matters to their bottom line you know we say this on every issue we say this with every species where this issue comes up ranchers are environmentalists and they're environmentalists because it impacts their bottom line you have to have healthy rangelands you have to have a healthy balanced ecosystem you have to have clean water to be able to run a successful ranch so you know we don't really need fish and wildlife to come in and say do this do that to save this bird ranchers are already doing it what we need is for fish and wildlife to remove this incredibly burdensome and troubling 4d rule and essentially you know get out of the way support the work that ranchers are already doing and let them keep doing it so that we can all get back to the important work of running their operations feeding people conserving this rangeland habitat and supporting the the success of the lesser prairie chicken. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, 2023 could bring another decline in overall U.S. meat production. With more on that story, here's Gary Crawford. Even though U.S. production of pork, broilers, and turkeys is expected to increase this year. We are still seeing a decline in total meat production And that is driven by a fairly sharp decline in beef production. USDA Outlook Board Chairman Mark Jekanowski says this could be the second year in a row of declining total U.S. meat production. And compared to 2022, total meat production down about 420 million pounds. Total meat production has declined from the year before only four times in the last 31 years. And again, it's beef output going down that's pulling the meat production number down. Beef producers hit by drought and high feed costs have been pushing more cattle to market than normal sooner than normal, causing a bit of a temporary spike up in beef output currently. But again, year over year, beef production still down about 1.9 billion pounds or about 6.5%, sending steer prices up. Mark says they could average 9.5% higher than last year. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks, Gary. You know, America's dairy producers and processors are closely watching discussions about the next farm bill, and they're looking for reforms to federal milk marketing orders. According to CoBank, the industry feels that current FMMOs don't reflect today's market environment, and the consequences could be drastic. Make allowances are an important part of the orders that have not yet been updated since 2008 and were based on data as far back as 2006. Make allowances estimate dairy processors' cost of converting milk into dairy products. Many of those production costs, including labor and energy, have risen dramatically since make allowances were updated some 15 years ago. And while the current make allowances have stayed the same since 2008, Prices for industrial power rose 64%, labor cost in dairy manufacturing 48%. While industrial natural gas prices have actually fallen 11%, they've been highly volatile during that time. They note that failing to update them could hinder future dairy industry growth. 
And Alltech has released its 2023 Agri-Food Outlook, highlighting global feed production survey data. And despite significant challenges that hit the entire supply chain, they note global feed production remained steady last year at 1.266 billion metric tons. That's a decrease of only a half a percent from the previous year. Now, the top feed-producing countries during the past year, China still at number one at 260.7 million metric tons. The U.S. is in second place at 240.4, and Brazil a distant third. Together, the top 10 feed-producing countries produced 64% of the total world production. Half of the world's feed consumption is concentrated in four areas, including China, the U.S., Brazil, and India. Vietnam jumped ahead of Argentina and Germany into the top 10 feed tonnage. Russia overtook Spain, which reported a significant reduction in feed production. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Some national praise from the National Corn Growers Association. That's coming up on this line of ours. The National Corn Growers Association praised the Biden administration for issuing an official rejection of a recent proposed compromise from Mexico on biotech corn imports into that country. The development came during a meeting between Mexican officials and the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Secretary of Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs, Alexis Taylor, as well as the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative's Chief Ag Negotiator, Doug McCaleb. In a statement that came after the meeting, USTR and USDA said the changes offered by Mexico, quote, are not sufficient and Mexico's proposed approach, which is not grounded in science, still threatens to disrupt billions of dollars in bilateral agricultural trade, cause serious economic harm to U.S. farmers and Mexican livestock producers, and stifle important innovations needed to help producers respond to pressing climate and food security challenges. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Applications are now being accepted for USDA's first-ever regional agricultural trade mission to the Netherlands, April 17th through 20th. In 2021, U.S. agriculture, fishery, and forestry products exported to the Netherlands totaled $3.4 billion, which made it the United States' 10th largest export market. Ryan Brewster of the Foreign Agricultural Service says another reason for the ag trade mission to the Netherlands. The port of Rotterdam is there. That really is one of the gateways into the rest of Europe. So we see a lot of opportunity for importers who are located in the Netherlands to take U.S. products and distribute them across Europe. So we're really excited about that. There's several products that we're actually looking to try to promote. Mission details and application information is available online at www.fas.usda.gov. 
I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Agribusinesses can exert power over farmers through limits on technology use and access, as well as by other agreements that producers sign to utilize services and products. A big issue in 2022 was whether the ownership of the technology associated with farm equipment and machinery limits a farmer's right to repair. I'll get back to the report in a moment, but I want you to know that Schrader Real Estate and Auction Company has sold farm and ranch land and farm equipment in 40 states. Learn how the Schrader family can help your family. Visit SchraderAuction.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R Auction.com. When a farmer buys a new tractor, the manufacturer may view the transaction more as a technology lease than as a machine sale. At issue is the ownership of the software and technology in the farm machinery. Farmers are adept at repairing, upgrading, and modifying farm equipment to save costs and meet farming needs. However, the dramatic increase in computerization of equipment means that all types of data is sent to the cloud via a cellular transmitter. As a result, the manufacturer will claim that only an authorized dealer can make repairs. This is the crux of the right to repair argument. It's a big deal for ag because of the common need to keep costs down by personally maintaining equipment. Recently, John Deere, in a memo of understanding, said it will provide timely electronic access to farmers and independent repair shops of the manuals, software, and tools necessary to operate, maintain, repair, or upgrade equipment. But the access won't be free, and the deal is off if a signatory to the memo introduces right-to-repair legislation in a state legislature. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. The oh-so-badly-familiar sound for many folks who live in the West, the sound of a team of firefighters trying to contain yet another ferocious wildfire. We're told that four and a half million U.S. homes are at high or extreme risk from wildfires, over two million of those just in California alone. But homes are not the worst things to be lost. In 2021, for example, there were 3,800 civilians who lost their lives to wildfires, also 70 firefighters. With the climate changing, we have heard over the past few years many experts warning of a coming wildfire crisis. But at this point, according to Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, The crisis uh, is now. And he says it demands immediate action. Uh, in our force uh, to provide greater protection. Last year, the Ag Department's Forest Service selected 10 western landscape areas for special projects designed to reduce the risk to communities there from devastating wildfires. And now... We intend to expand on that effort. Vilsack telling reporters the other day that USDA has identified... An additional 11 landscapes that span 66 high-priority fire sheds in seven western states. This made possible because of $490 million from the Inflation Reduction Act plus funds from the bipartisan infrastructure law. These resources are going to allow us to reduce uh, hazardous fuels uh, strategically and thoughtfully uh, in areas where we have community and partner support, including tribes. Uh, We'll place this uh, fuel reduction treatments around and near uh, uh, critical communities Uh, We look forward to protecting important infrastructure, power lines, dams, municipal watersheds, uh, military infrastructure as well. Uh, And we're going to continue to look for ways in which we can prioritize 
the protection of large, mature, and old-growth trees. Plus, there are projects in the opposite direction, going on to plant new trees and other plants in places where fire has destroyed the trees that once grew there. Vilsack says because of the work that will be done in these fire sheds. Around 200 communities in the western U.S. will see a mitigated fire risk as a result. Again, this work is going on because of money coming out of the Inflation Reduction Act and bipartisan infrastructure law. However, Vilsack says those bills are only furnishing short-term funding for the huge amount of wildfire mitigation work that needs to be done. This is going to require a long-term commitment that spans a number of years. We didn't get into this circumstance overnight. And he said we won't get out of it overnight either. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. Our nation's produce industry, fruits, vegetables, and other specialty crops, is highly labor-intensive on the farm level. Yet, as USDA economic researcher Skylar Simnet explains, There's a general consensus in the U.S. right now that domestic farm workers are getting harder to find. As evidence of that, the farm wage rate is increasing faster than the non-farm wage rate for non-supervisory positions. When supply is not keeping up with demand, you end up with a higher equilibrium price, which in that case is the wage rate. So we find that growers, particularly in the produce industries, are affected by this. And that's because their products are labor-intensive. And also, a large share of their total cost expenditures, as you'd think, would go to labor. As a result, growers are looking into other production and management strategies to offset rising labor costs, some short-term, others at a longer range of time. Examples range from using existing mechanical aids to developing new and improving existing technologies. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. We anticipate that grain futures have established a short-term base in here this week, and until more rain actually comes to dry areas of South America, significant rain, we might add, futures can slowly add value in our view. That being said, resistance, though, may come fast. March corn, we think, will feel that resistance near or above that 688 level. March soybeans will be hard-pressed to break through 1510, especially 1520. The wheat trade may have advanced too far too fast here this week in our view. Rain and snow, parts of the plains here this week. March Chicago wheat did uh, hit a wall. We think will hit a wall around 745, 747. Well, the first ever Crop Nutrition Week is February 6th through the 10th. 
Brought to you by AgriLiquid. It's all free. It's a virtual week of learning. Learn more. In fact, register for free online, CropNutritionWeek.com. Go to CropNutritionWeek.com. This is the Bottom Line Report. Crude oil hit the highest since December the 5th here this week and may retest early January lows just below $75. Delegates from OPEC Plus meet next week. They look to maintain the current production cuts of about 2 million barrels per day. They'll be meeting at the same time the Federal Reserve Board meets here, Wall Street pricing in a 25 basis point rate hike. I'm Mark Oppold wishing you a profitable day. What you're hearing right now is the snow plow going up and down my street, plowing open the road and plowing in my poor car that's parked on the curb. Winter, some people like it, I don't, a lot of folks don't. And for people who love gardening outside and all, this has to be a really bleak, dire time of year. Yes, it is. Uh, Ward Upham, he's an extension horticultural expert, Kansas State University. He knows what a depressing time it can be for people who love to go out and garden. Yeah. It's terrible. One of the reasons I think they send out seed catalogs this early is just because uh, that gives people something to dream about. Dream when you're feeling blue. Yes, dream. But Ward Upham told us, you know, we can do more than just dream. There are things to do. You know, make plans for this coming year. And that can be enjoyable in and of itself. Even though you're not able to get outside, you can make all your plans now and and figure out what plants you like, you know, all that type of thing. And also there are some things we can actually do uh, hands-on, especially if our plan includes trying to raise plants from seeds this winter. One is get everything together. If you're going to grow from seed, you know, transplants from seed, Now is the time to make sure you have everything you need. You know, get all your seed ordered. Yeah, so now the seedy part of our story. We're looking around, and and we come across uh, in our garden stuff some seed packets we didn't know we had. Obviously, didn't use them last year. So, Ward, are these uh, seeds worth trying to use this season? I mean, how long can they last? Normally, with most of our seeds, about three years, they will still have acceptable viability. And so if you're unsure and you have a lot of seeds... It may be a good idea just to test germinate some. In other words, put like 10 seeds on a moist paper towel, wrap it all up, put it in a plastic bag, and then put it like on top of the refrigerator so it has a little bit of heat. And then after a week, check it. See how many of those seeds have germinated and then maybe leave it another week and get a percent germination count. That's going to tell you how viable that seed is and whether it's going to be worth keeping or not. And, of course, it may not be worth keeping. Even if it's good, it may not be the type suited to our region. Maybe that's why we didn't use those seeds in the first place. Variety is really important. Is it well adapted to your area? Not all those varieties are going to work well in all parts of the country. And Ward says if you are new to gardening or new to a region or both, might be a good idea to find out what's best for your area. Sources of information would be the University Extension Service in your area, uh, local garden centers. Those are good sources of information so you can find out what is going to work well for you. Next time, some things we need to know and stuff we need to have if we are dreaming about starting those garden plants from seeds. And no nightmares either. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. 
This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Today's specialty crop news brought to you by the Almond Board of California. You can find them online at almonds.com. ABC Senior Specialist of Industry Communications, Taylor Hillman, joins us today to give us some details on the upcoming Board of Directors election. And now, Taylor, I know it's still a little bit of a ways away, but uh, what's the election going to look like this year in in terms of timelines and um, open positions? Yeah, that's right, Brian. So the 2023 Almond Board of California Board of Directors election is just around the corner. Formal election announcements will be distributed next month, February. But ABC is letting everybody know what seats are open this year. And this year there are three open positions, one independent grower position and two independent handler positions. Along with those three voting positions, there are also three corresponding alternate positions that are open for the election as well. Um, Two of those positions are the swing seats, which means they're um, voted on yearly, so that's expected. And then one of the um, handler seats is a three-year term that comes up this year. And additionally, ABC will be seeking to fill an alternate independent grower position that remained vacant last year, um, last fiscal year. So there's three seats with corresponding alternate seats and an extra alternate seat that will be up for election this year. And now uh, the Almond Board is involved in a variety of, of different activities. So what, what role does the board play? What does that entail? Yeah, the Board of Directors really does a lot. They, they guide the work of the Almond Industries Federal Marketing Order, which is ABC. Um, It helps lead the California industry in the adoption of uh, innovative research programs, um, expanding demand building initiatives, all of our marketing programs, you know, especially in in the um, years of increasing supply, uh, helps lead through the challenges to the industry's reputation that we face back during drought years. Uh, They really do an important role. They represent over 7,600 growers and approximately 100 handlers across the state. And the Almond Board, the board itself, is responsible for establishing policy, recommending budgets, uh, programs to the Secretary of Agriculture for approval, and reviewing program results and effectiveness as we move along. There's, there's over 200 active Almond industry members that volunteer to serve either on ABC's Board of Directors, board-appointed committees, subcommittees, and work groups. Um, Getting involved really provides an opportunity to help shape the future successes of the industry, ensuring that consumers and stakeholders support the industry's vision that California almonds make life better by what we grow and how we grow. 
um, people that are interested, they can learn more for about running for a position on the board of directors um, at almonds.com slash elections. They can also contact our team. Uh, Tony Ariano at ABC is the best person to contact for that. You can find her email on the website as well. And again, that website to find out more is almonds.com slash elections. And uh, just for, for people that are considering this or, or, or go, wanting to go to the website to learn some more uh, about what this entails, I mean, who, who would be a good candidate for this? What, what kind of industry members uh, might, might serve well on the board? Yeah, literally anybody. Um, and as everybody hopefully knows that all of our meetings um, are open to the public. So if people are interested and kind of want to get a feel of what either the board of directors or our committees is about um, and what it entails, people can sit in on our meetings all the time and we still make them um, available virtually as well. So people can sit in on a meeting and check it out, but, but literally anybody um, could fill any of these positions. Uh, it's open to, to all industry members. As long as you're in the almond industry, um, you're, you're welcome to throw your name in the hat and see uh, if you can help lead this industry um, with future decisions. So uh, the board is essentially the industry helping the industry itself kind of lead and, and look beyond what we're currently dealing with. And as, as part of that, what is the, uh, the, what are the co-op positions all, all about with this? Yeah, so for those who, who may not know, the Almond Board of California Board of Directors is made up of independent handlers and growers and then co-op handlers and growers. The co-op side of thing is really handled by Blue Diamond. We don't do much in that election process, but they do represent a portion of our board. There are several seats that are open for the co-op handler positions. Again, ABC has nothing to do with those positions, but the co-op handler two position um, is available this year. Uh, both the voting member and the alternate member, and then also the alternate member for the co-op handler one position. So there could be several new faces um, uh, on the ABC board come here in August. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at Statewide Agriculture News at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. Support us at 4H.org. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Hi, I'm uh, Matthew Pye. I am a biological subject matter expert with FMC. Uh, Matthew, today we're talking all about biologicals. There's been a lot of buzz about uh, biological materials, just the biological sector in general. So why don't we start off with a Biologicals 101, break it down. What is it exactly? Yeah, so, well, there's, yeah, biologicals are no one thing. It's such a, a huge category. Uh, you've got all kinds of natural products, uh, living organisms, um, different crop inputs. Uh, typically, uh, when I talk about biologicals and think about biologicals, uh, I think about your biofertilizers, biostimulants, and then biopesticides. So FMC um, is primarily in that biopesticide uh, market, um, and we're bringing 
bringing new products to that to the biopesticide market specifically for California. So these are going to be formulations that are OMRI certified, so they can go into either that organic acre or into conventional growing. And why is it important that growers have both types of tools, non-conventional um, and our conventional types of materials. Yeah, so um, the nice thing about biologicals is they bring new modes of action um, and gr also some greater flexibility uh, even, even to conventional growers. Uh, and the nice thing about a lot of the products that we'll be bringing is that they're compatible with uh, synthetics. Uh, and then, ha you know, having that um, that OMRI certification allows a organic grower uh, also to use our products. And then there's also in California a lot of growers who are transitioning from conventional to organic. And so this is a nice way to, to bridge uh, into that area. Talk to me a bit about research. Yeah, so um, we have both. We have uh, a discovery pipeline for biologicals. So we're looking in-house um, at some of our own um, biologicals, and then we're also um, interested in in third-party products. So we've acquired uh, some some biologicals as well. Most recently was our acquisition of Biofera. So. It's a biological production of pheromones uh, in a, a yeast vector format to reduce the price of pheromones. We're really excited about that, and that kind of shows our commitment to continuing to grow biologicals. Uh, we work on the research front. Um, obviously, we have lab testing early on, uh, field testing. A lot of it's done with UC Extension, um, so we get our products out uh, for the the folks folks in uh, UC to, to have a look at. Um, but yeah, we're, we're extensively testing and bringing a lot, we've got a lot in our pipeline that'll be coming to market in the next three to five years. And what are you hearing from producers about the interest? Is it there? Is it something that's sort of this idea and it's not quite tangible or what are you hearing? I mean, there's a ton of interest, obviously, on the fruit and vegetable market. Um, there's been interest in biologicals for a long time. So here in Kansas City, we're talking to, to uh, row crop growers about biologicals. So the interest and the appetite is everywhere. It continues to expand. Um, and we're really trying to help educate the grower as to what our products uh, do and what they do not do. Because biologicals, um, you know, it's not, they're not a wonder cure for everything. Um, we do see a fit and we see the efficacy they bring. And so we want the grower to understand what the products really do in terms of performance. And now if growers want to gather more information on all of the resources and tools that you provide, where can they go? What's the best way to way to approach that? Yeah, so they can um, visit our, our website, uh, ag.fmc.com, uh, to learn more about our, our products. The multiple training opportunities at Activate 23. Ag Safe's annual conference, Activate 23, is coming up next month. And AgSafe's president and CEO, Teresa Keene, says in addition to the conference, there are supplemental seminars and certificate programs also taking place. We've broken up the AgSafe conference into different experiences for our attendees. And so if you are an individual or sending your team to the AgSafe conference and you want to participate in those, those traditional tracks, so the ones that we are offering, if you go to our website, you can see our um, grid of sessions that we're offering. And if those seem like those are a good fit for you to attend that regulatory track, emerging issues or industry issues, you'll want to do our traditional track and um, sign up for that package. Now, if you are interested in sending your team to the safety certificate program or our human resources certificate program, those are premium tracks. So you can go ahead and select those. I will say on those premium tracks, um, they have a space capacity limit, and we are getting really close to reaching those. Um, like I said, those tend to be really popular sessions to send your work workforce to. So make sure that if you're thinking about doing that, do it now and get them signed up, because I imagine probably by the end of this week, those will be sold out. 
To learn more information and to register for the conference taking place February 8th through the 9th, visit agsafe.org backslash activate 23. The new guide helps farms and rural small businesses go solar. Earlier this week, Solar United Neighbors released a new guide to help farmers and rural small business owners apply for a key federal grant and loan. The guide will make it easier for rural Americans to install solar energy at their property. The comprehensive guide takes applicants step-by-step through the Rural Energy for America program, also known as REAP, application process. The REAP program has been so popular that funding for the grants has not been able to meet the demand. The Inflation Reduction Act passed last year quadrupled REAP funding over the next 10 years. Farmers and rural small business owners can receive loan guarantees of up to 75% of total eligible product costs through REAP. They can receive grants for up to 40% of the total project cost. Solar United Neighbors is hosting a free webinar on February 2nd to educate attendees about the REAP program and what steps they need to take to apply. You can learn more by visiting solarunitedneighbors.org. NAFB contributed to that report. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.